Children's Pulpit Hour on BBN. And this evening, Dr. Gary Chapman will follow up with his message last evening with part two of the five love languages of children this evening. Gary Chapman is the best-selling author of the Five Love Languages book and series. He is the director of Marriage and Family Life Consultants. With his extensive pastoring and marriage counseling experience, he travels the world presenting seminars to couples who want to improve their marriage relationship. In addition to his busy writing and seminar schedule, Dr. Chapman is the senior associate pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He has served there for nearly 50 years. Here again is Dr. Gary Chapman. Okay, now let's uh, talk about how you discover a child's love language, our primary love language. One is that you observe how they express love to you. You can learn a child's love language by the time they are three or four. My son's love language is physical touch. When I would come home in the afternoon at about three, he would run to the door and grab my leg, and if I picked him up, fine, and when I sat down on the couch, he would get on me, he'd mess up my hair, he'd wrestle with me. He's touching me because he wants to be touched. Our daughter never did that. When she was three or four and I would come home, she would say, Daddy, come into my room, I want to show you something. Come into my room, Daddy, I want to show you something. She was asking for quality time. So you can pick it up by observing how they express love to you. Secondly, how do they express love to other people? How do they express love to other people? Uh, such as grandparents or kids that come over to play with them or kids that are in their class, if they, if they go to church, to a, to a Bible class at church, uh, or as they get older, their teachers. If they are always wanting to take the teacher a gift, it's a pretty good sign that gifts is their language. If they are always offering to help people do things, that's a sign that that's their love language. So you observe how they express love to you and how they express love to other people. Then number three, what do they request most often? What do they request most often? If they're saying, can we take a walk after dinner? They're asking you for quality time. Or, would you bring me a surprise when you go to the store? They're asking you for gifts. If they say, did I do a good job? They're asking you for words of affirmation. So what do they request most often? And then, what do they complain about? The complaint also reveals the love language. The seven-year-old who says, we don't ever go to the park anymore since the baby came, is telling you, you used to give me quality time. The two of us used to go to the park but we don't do that since the baby came. If you, uh, if you go on a trip and come home and the child says, you didn't bring me anything? They're telling you that gifts is their language. If they say, Mommy, my doll dress is still torn. They're telling you that acts of service is their language and they ask you if you could fix the doll dress and you haven't done it. 
if, if you hear a child say, I don't ever do anything right, they're telling you that words of affirmation is their language. So you listen to their complaints. Children's complaints reveal the heart. They're telling you what makes them feel loved. Incidentally, this is a wonderful clue to your spouse's love language. What do they complain about? If your wife says to you, we don't ever spend any time together anymore. Now what do we say? We get defensive usually. What do you mean don't spend any time together? Went out to dinner last Thursday night. But if your spouse says we don't ever spend any time together, they're telling you that quality time is their language. Or if they say, I don't think you would ever touch me if I didn't initiate it, they're telling you that physical touch is their language. You say, we get defensive, but really they're giving us valuable information. And then uh, give them choices between two options. Uh, you say to an uh, eight-year-old, you know, I got a free hour this afternoon, and we could either go over to the mall, and I could get that whatever it is that they've been wanting, or you and I could take a walk in the park. Which would you rather do? If they choose the ball, it's gifts. If they choose the park, it's quality time. And you give them choices between the two, and you keep a record of them, and you'll see that their, their choices will fall into a category. So it's another way of of determining their, their language. And then you can experiment. Uh, and what I mean by that is, if, you, if, you, if you're really having trouble discovering a child's language, this, this, this will help you. Both of you focus for one week on pouring on one love language. Let's say words. this is our week for words of affirmation. We're going to give the child words of affirmation. And then over the weekend, you back off. And next week, you give another love language. And the week that you're speaking their primary love language, you'll see a radical difference in that child's demeanor and behavior and their spirit. I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll just be obvious to you. Experiment. So it's really not that difficult to determine a child's love language. Now, I want to say a word about how this affects discipline uh, of a child. First of all, you will have less discipline if a child's love tank is full because much of the misbehavior of children grows out of an empty love tank. You see, when children don't feel loved, they, they are, they are going to do things that are designed to get attention from you. Uh, school teachers know that the children who are always acting up in class, often it's because they're trying to get attention that they don't have. And so you're going to have less discipline. Uh, much of the misbehavior of children grows out of an empty love tank. Not, not all of it, to be sure. I'm not saying that if you fill their love tank, you'll have a perfect child. No. Children are going to do, do wrong. But, and also, much of the misbehavior of adults comes out of an empty love tank. When you don't feel loved in a marriage, you're far more likely to get into something that's not healthy. And that's why it's important in a marriage to keep the love tank full. So you'll have less discipline. And then secondly, you'll have better discipline because you will, you will understand that when you take a child's primary love language and you use the negative form of that, you are giving that child severe punishment. And many parents don't understand this. For example, uh, if words of affirmation is your child's primary language and your main method of discipline is yelling at the kid, 
that is severe punishment. That's like a dagger to that child's heart. Whereas another kid, you could yell at them, and it kind of goes like water off the duck's back. Physical touch. If a child's language is physical touch, and your method of discipline is to always spank them, that's severe discipline to that child. Whereas another child, if physical touch is not their language, they will actually say to you sometimes, why don't you spank me? <laughs> yeah? Or quality time. If quality time is their primary language and your main method of discipline is isolating them, that's severe punishment for that child because you're isolating them. Whereas other children, you put them in their room or in the corner, they go in there and have fun. It's no discipline at all. So what I'm saying is that if you understand this concept, it will help you give better discipline. Now, I'm not opposed to, uh, to, to isolating a child. But what I'm saying is, even if their language is quality time, but it should be a big crime because that's big punishment. You see, if, if they're not, what's the purpose of discipline? It's to correct the child. We're not trying to hurt the child. We're trying to correct the child. Same reason God disciplines us. So if, if none of the other methods of discipline are getting their attention and turning them around, then isolating that child will probably get their attention and turn them around because it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge punishment. So it'll help you do better discipline if you understand this concept. And then uh, it'll be more productive discipline. That is, they're more likely to receive it in a positive way. Uh, let, me, let me also throw this out, and, and this, this, is, this fits in here. If you will wrap your discipline in love, the child is more likely to receive it in a positive way and change the behavior. Now, here's what I mean by that. Let's say that you have a rule that we don't throw the ball inside the house. And if you do throw the ball in the house, then the ball has to go in the trunk of the car for two days. And if you break something when you throw the ball, you'll have to pay for that out of your allowance. Is that a pretty fair deal? Okay, so you understand that. The child understands that. So let's say the child throws the ball in the house and, and breaks a, a glass or whatever. Now, if you will wrap the discipline in love, let's say their language is words of affirmation. So you say to Johnny, you know, Johnny, one of the things I like about you is you so seldom break the rules. I really like that about you. But you know you broke the rule this time and you threw the ball in the house. So you know what has to happen, right? The ball has to go in the trunk. And you know they will have to pay for the glass out of your allowance. But listen, I am so proud of you because you so seldom break the rules. Johnny walks away feeling, I deserve that. That was right. But let's say you don't wrap it in discipline. And, you, and Johnny throws the ball and breaks the glass. And you say, Johnny, you know you're not supposed to throw the ball in the house. Now give me the ball. And you go put it in the trunk of the car for two days. And you have to pay for that glass. And Johnny walks away. And he's thinking, I try so hard. And I messed up one time. And I get clobbered. Are you, you understand what I'm saying? If the child feels loved, they're more likely to receive the discipline in a positive way. Now, parents say, well, Dr. Chapman, how about gifts? You mean you're going to give them two gifts? 
well, you, a kiss, a candy kiss on the front end, and something, a stone on the other end. <laughs> it doesn't have to be anything big, but we're, we're just trying to communicate to the child that we love the child, but we have to discipline the child. See, the truth is God disciplines us because God loves us, and that's why we discipline our children because we love our children. We want them to learn to live within boundaries. We want to learn them to grow up to be responsible, and therefore we have guidelines for them. And incidentally, and we discuss this in the book, uh, the best discipline is what I just described, that everybody knows the rules very clearly, what they are, and everybody knows what's going to happen if you break the rule. If you, don't, if you haven't spelled out what's going to happen if they break the rule, then it's just, it just depends on your attitude at the moment. And if you're in a happy attitude, you might even let it slip and nothing's going to happen. And if you're in a bad attitude, then you might come down and hit them with a $1,000 worth of punishment for a nickel's worth of crime just because of your, your, where you were. But if, if everybody knows what the rules are and everybody knows what's going to happen if you break the rules, then... It doesn't matter whether mama's at home or daddy's at home. The discipline's going to be the same, and the child already knows what it's going to be, and, and it, it, that, that's the way life works. I mean, that's what God did, is it not? He says, don't do this and do this. If you do this, here's what's going to happen. So that, that's the way all of life is. So you have, you have much, better, much better discipline if the child feels loved. Okay, let, let me say a word about teenagers. How many of you have teenagers? Okay. And how many of you anticipate someday having teenagers? <laughs> okay. If you have children, I hope you anticipate that. Okay. So let me just say a word about teenagers. Uh, I don't know if you understand that in this country, we did not have teenage culture until the Great Depression. I'm not talking about the more recent Depression. I'm talking about the one in the 30s. Before the Great Depression, all teenagers worked. They worked on the farm or they worked in the factory. And usually they worked 11 or 12 hours in the factory. And there was no teenage culture. But when the Great Depression came along, all the teenagers lost their jobs. And they were hanging around in city parks and getting in all kinds of trouble. So what did our nation decide to do? Start the public high school. Up until that time, most people went to only the eighth grade. Only the rich people went to high school. We started a public high school. And the purpose of the public high school was to teach the children a trade and to build character. Wouldn't that be nice? But we isolated the teenagers. We pulled them out of the culture and put them for several hours a day by themselves. And what happened? They developed their own culture, their own music, their own language, their own dress, and all the rest of it. That's where teenage culture came from. Just a little tidbit for you, okay? But now let's look at what happens to teenagers uh, just briefly. Uh, the differences between uh, teenagers and children. And the differences, really, some of the differences between our generation of teenagers and the generation of teenagers a couple of ge uh, generations back. Uh, all teenagers are moving toward independence. And this is good. I mean, I hope you have in your mind as a parent that we've got 18 years to bring this child to a level of independence. Because at 18, typically, they're going to go to the university, or they're going to join the military, or they're going to get a job, we hope, in our culture. 
So you've got to be thinking independence. Well, in the teenage years, they are moving toward independence. And that's why they don't always want to go with you to family gatherings. And they don't always want you to be with them when they go shopping. They're, they're, they're going through this process of pulling away from you and being independent. And sometimes parents get shaky about this and feel like, you know, they don't like us. And it's just a part of the process, okay? And uh, still, it doesn't mean you let them do everything they want to do, but you recognize we're going to give them more independence uh, because that's, that's, uh, that's where they're moving. They're also developing logical thinking. We sometimes say they're argumentative, and they sometimes are. But what they are doing is developing logical thought. And that's why they will say to you, well, that's not right. And they will give you arguments. You know, they, they, they can, they're, they're beginning to learn how to think logically now. And, they can, and that's why some parents say, I think he's going to be a lawyer. Because he's, you know. <laughs> but that all, all teenagers are going through this. And they're learning how to think logically. And consequently, they're going to question things that before they've always just accepted. But right now, they're beginning to question those things. And this is why in the religious area, they will ask you questions that they never asked when they were younger. And, and I hope that you'll just be honest with them and, and listen to the question. Don't say, well, you shouldn't be asking questions like that. Listen to the question, and if you can give an answer, give an answer. If you can't, you say, you know, that's a good question. I don't have a good answer for that. I think I'll talk with Ju to Justin about that one. <laughs> and, or I'll talk to somebody, and I'll see what we can find. That's a good question. Uh, so you receive their questions because you recognize that they're beginning to develop logical thought. And you, let, you think with them. You think you go right with them on that, on the logical thing. And, 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 and then say to them, you know, what, what if you're right? And what if everybody operated that way? How would that impact culture? How would that impact our family? Because sometimes if, if their thinking is illogical, you can help them discover that it's illogical. But we want to help them develop a logical thinking, and that's, that's a positive thing. And then they are searching for their identity. They are asking themselves inside, who am I? Am I a student? Am I a ball player? Who am I? It's a question that all teenagers are wrestling with. And what you say to them can influence them greatly. Uh, our son went off to college, and he made uh, C's and B's. And he, in high school, he made B's. And his, third, his second year in college, he took a philosophy course and made an A. And it blew his mind. And he came home and he said, Dad, I like this stuff. He said, I think I might major in this. And he started making A's in all of his classes. And one day I said to him, Derek, do you have any idea what happened to you? I said, you know, you made B's in high school. You made C's and B's your first year. And now you're making straight A's in everything. And he told us something that we had never, ever heard him say. He said, Dad, when I was in the fifth grade, my teacher said to me, well, Derek, I, I just guess you're not a student like your sister because the teacher had had his sister two or three years before. You're not a student like your sister. 
So I said, I just figured, well, I'm not a student. So I'm going to play ball. So he played basketball. He's real good in basketball. You understand? His identity was he was a ball player. He was not a student. And he got that from one statement from a teacher. You're not a student. So he decided, I'm a ball player. So what we say to, to students, the comments we make, and sometimes we forget we even said it, and they remember it for years. So they are, they're, they're searching for self-identity. And then their, their emotions are fluctuating. That is, a parent, parents say to me, Dr. Tim, I don't understand. You know, uh, my, my, my son's love language is physical touch, and, but now half the time when I touch him, he, he pushes me away and says, don't touch me, and I don't understand what's going on here. And I said, their emotions are going like this. And a good guideline on the physical touch thing, if he comes up close to you and asks you a question and stands real close to you, then you can assume that you can hug him, if that's his language. But if he's standing on the other side of the room asking you the question, that's not the time to hug him. He's, that's a clue. And so that, that's why in the morning they can be one way, in the afternoon and evening they can be a different way because they're going through all these, all these fluctuations. And then they're coping with all the physical changes that are taking place in their life, all the development of the body and the sexual organs and all of that's taking place, and they're trying to make sense out of all of that. So we have to understand that the teenage years are some of the most traumatic years in one's life, and they're going through all of these things. And now we have, are trying to love them while they're going through all of this and keeping their love tank full. And so many, many parents have said to me, uh, Dr. Chapman, when they get to be teenagers, does their love language change? Because I know my child's love language. I've been speaking it. It was working wonderful when they were children. Now I'm doing the same thing I've always done, and it's not working. They're pushing me away. They don't want it. And they ask me, does the love language change? And my answer is, no, I don't think the love language changes, but... You have to learn new dialects because what you have been doing, they consider to be childish, and they're not kids now, and so you have to learn new dialects. If, for example, when, they, you know, when they're little down here, your hug and physical touch is their language, and you hug them and kiss them, and now they're teenagers, and you're trying to hug and kiss them, and they're pushing you away, that's kid stuff. They still need touch, but it has to be more adult touches, like elbows, like pats on the back, like high fives, like wrestling them to the floor, you, new dialects. And if, if words is their language, and you, you were telling tell them when they were little, you're my, you're my sweet little boy, I love you so much, and, da, 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 da. and they, they don't want to hear that stuff now. You've got to use more adult words to them now. So whatever the language, uh, you have to change the dialect when they get to be teenagers if you want to, if you want to stay connected to them. Uh, I'm going to close with this, but I tried to analyze behind the scenes, underneath the surface, what are the elements of a child or a teenager feeling loved? And here, here are the three things that I think uh, go into that. Okay, one of them is connection. One aspect of love is the child feels connected. Connected. This is why I think 
Sharing meals together as a family is so important. It is one of the ways that we feel connected to the family. And in today's world, uh, this is happening less and less because we're running to this ball game and that ball game and this piano practice and this, this and this and this and this and families don't have any time together to be connected. Uh, for us, because we were committed to this, it meant we had to change the, the evening meal time, you know, sometimes 4 o'clock, sometimes 8 o'clock, depending on what was going on, but we still, we still had the meal together. And our kids look back and say to us that one of the fondest memories they have of childhood was that we, the meals we had together, because we also talked when we had meals. TV's off, radio is off, computer is off. This is family. We talk to each other. We share what's going on in our lives. I remember when they were in college, they would bring their kids, their college friends home for, for, uh, to visit for weekends, and, and many of their friends could not believe that we'd sit around the table and talk for an hour after the meal. Connection is a huge part of feeling love. And then acceptance. Acceptance. And this is where we, we, we struggle sometimes because we don't always like what they're doing. We don't like what they're into. And we don't have to, but we have to accept them. It's the thing I was talking about earlier, really. I love you no matter what you do. I don't agree with you on everything. I don't like everything, but I love you. I accept you. You are my son and my daughter. You see, this is, this is, the, this is what God does for us. We, di we may disappoint God, but we're still his children. If we put our faith in Christ, we're still his children. We can be disobedient children, but we're still his children. The Bible says we're accepted in Christ. He accepts us because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And acceptance is a big part of love. And then the third is nurture. And this is where the love language thing, I think, really, really zeroes in on. It's nurture is to feed. It's feeding the, the heart of that child. Now, if you look at the opposite of these three things, you're looking at, uh, at a child that has deep, deep trouble. The opposite of connection is abandonment. And this is why children who go through the divorce of their parents struggle far more in feeling loved than do children whose parents stay together particularly if the non-custodial parent has very little time with that child. And as you know, in our culture, we often have a situation where the non-custodial parent is not even around. It's abandonment. Or they feel abandoned. Uh, and then the opposite of acceptance is rejection. The sense that my parents don't like me, my parents wish I were not their child, it's that sense of being rejected. It's the opposite of acceptance. And then the opposite of nurture is abuse. Either physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse. And you put those three things together. If the child has a sense of being abandoned, a sense of being rejected, and is abused, you have got a child that's going to have deep, deep, deep trouble emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every area. And that's why what we're talking about tonight is so important. It's not everything about child rearing, but keeping a child's love tank full 
and the child having that sense that my mother, my mother and my father love me, and they're there for me, and they accept me, and they're glad that I'm their child, and I know that even when I disappoint them, they still love me, and they're still going to be there for me. That provides the greatest sense of security for a child, whether they're a teenager or whether they're an elementary age child. So this has a tremendous impact on learning. It also has a tremendous impact on the child's anger level. If a child feels loved by the parents, they will experience less anger. If they don't feel loved, they will experience more anger. There's something inside a child that says, my parents should love me. And when they don't feel loved by the parents, the emotion of anger arises in the child. Well, let me uh, thank you. And maybe uh, I could just pray for you for a minute. If you're with your spouse, maybe you could hold hands. Yeah. If you're by yourself, hold your own hand. And let's pray. Father, thank you that in your divine providence, you've allowed us to spend a few minutes together tonight reflecting on our children. Father, you know that those of us who are in this place love our children. And we want our children to feel loved. So I pray that what we've shared tonight, you will use to help us be more effective in doing what we really want to do, and that is fill the emotional need of our children for love. And I pray that you will also remind us that we as adults need love, and that if we're married, the person we would most like to love us is our spouse. So may we learn to apply this and learn to speak each other's language in our marriages so that we also operate with a full love tank. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for the deep security that brings. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This has been Conference Pulpit from the Bible Broadcasting Network. And this evening, Dr. Gary Chapman presented part two of the message, The Five Love Languages of Children. We trust the message was a blessing to you and a help in your understanding of your children in leading them in the light of the Lord and in His Word. Perhaps you're not able to lead your children in the ways of the Lord because you're not saved. If that's the case, allow a biblical advisor in our online chat ministry to help you in this decision for Christ tonight to know that you're saved, that you're a Christian. Just go to bbnchat.org bbnchat dot o-r-g bbnchat dot o-r-g That concludes the online feature. By the way, BBN is on social media. Connect with us on Facebook and